All right, well, we are in the book of James, and as we get started, would you, would you pray with me for this time? Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for how we've been able to sing and worship you. Thank you, God, for loving us where we are and for calling us to something greater. Lord, I pray that this morning, as we talk about difficult circumstances and trials, that you would give us your wisdom. Lord, we, we want your wisdom. Lord, please purge us of our own, our own thoughts, our own limited views of things, and let us see what you have called us to see. Let us desire and want what you have called us to desire. Let us believe you and let our lives line up with those beliefs. Help us this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. So James, start with the shortest introduction, I think, in most of Scripture, if not all of Scripture. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Now, Here's what you need to know about James, and you're going to find this. James just kind of dives right in. This is the extent of his greetings. Paul likes to give big, lengthy greetings of greeting of different people, and hey, say hi to this person and this person, and I remember fondly this time. And James, just out of almost a formality, because everyone started a letter introducing who they were, James is like, all right, fine, I'm James, servant of God and Lord Jesus Christ. Greetings. All right, here we go. Right? And I love that about him. And here's what we just need to know. So I'm going to honor that by just being very brief um, in, in the introduction for the book of James. Bottom line is James, if you're not sure who he was, he is actually not, he's not one of the original disciples. All right? So there are two Jameses um, who are disciples. And this James is not one of them. James, this James is the younger brother of Jesus. So the biological half-brother of Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph. He was not an original follower of Jesus, um, and neither would you be if your brother claimed to be Jesus. Um, I might need some water. <clears throat> Got a little. That's just to whoever cares about me, Jeff, Lauren. It's a race. But, oh, Andrew! Thanks, Andrew. So James um, is, is, refers to himself as simply a servant of the Lord. Imagine this. So James, we, we believe that he became a follower of Jesus after he sees Jesus after the resurrection. So he doesn't follow Jesus while Jesus is alive. Believe that it's when Jesus appears. Um, Paul refers to that in 1 Corinthians 15. That he appears to James and James believes. And as when he sees Jesus, all of a sudden he knows, oh, what you said is true. Which, by the way, I, I relate to that so much and hear that testimony. That if Jesus rose from the dead, then I believe him. I trust him. And so this is James' situation. So much so that now he doesn't even call himself a brother of Jesus, but a servant of the Lord. Now, a couple of things as you go through this book. Um, you'll notice uh, throughout that there's a heavy influence um, on James from the Sermon on the Mount. 
This is what's fascinating about the book of James. Historically, people look at James and they say, well, he only mentions Jesus twice. That's a fascinating thing about James. And again, maybe he's a little slow. It's his brother. I don't know. I don't know what the deal is there, but he doesn't really mention Jesus by name um, much. And so some people take that to believe, and then he has a focus on a lot of works. And so they take it to mean that, okay, it's not very gospel-centric. It's not very work of Jesus Christ-centric. But here's the thing. His letter is hugely influenced by the Sermon on the Mount. It is almost a, a repeating of and a kind of synthesizing of, which is one of the reasons why we're, it's great that we're studying it right now, because we just went through the Sermon on the Mount, and unless you think like Jesus just did this one-off sermon and it doesn't matter anymore, here's James coming in and restating it. It's also heavily influenced by Proverbs. And so what you'll see is, is this. You'll see these little, short, memorable phrases in James that are then surrounded by a context. And so one of the things that I would encourage you to do if you have a scripture journal or in your Bible, one of the things is to uh, notice those little, short, concise, proverb-like statements and maybe highlight them, underline them, put a box around them, and then look at the context around them to help you understand this statement. So there are many verses in James that you'll hear that even if you aren't familiar with James and you're not familiar that much with the Bible, you will hear many phrases in James that you're thinking, oh, I've heard that. Because they're short and, and memorable and to the point. But they have context. Now this first chapter over the next two weeks, it serves kind of as an introduction for the main body of the book. So chapters two through five are kind of the main body, but chapter one sets the stage. And so that's what we're going to try to do today is set the stage. He jumps right in. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So again, right out of the gate, James jumps right in. He doesn't have any greetings for anybody, no like special, like, hey, make sure you say hi to people. Now, part of that is because he's writing a generic letter. It's to the 12 tribes, so the scattered church. So he's expecting this to go to whomever is trying to follow Jesus, mostly Jewish Christians at the time. But he jumps right in. He doesn't even start with like an easy kind of ramp up thing. Hey, hey guys, remember God loves you. No, what does he start with? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. There's your main statement. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. James is writing this as a challenge to the Jewish Christians who have been scattered to live in line with their faith, to not give up on their faith. They are being met with all kinds of trials. And he's saying, not only am I calling you to endure and not give up, but he's saying you should count it all joy because of what God is doing through it. The trials they are facing don't need to destroy their faith. And in fact, it's meant to make it stronger. And here's the reality. Unless you think that James is just writing this from a comfy throne where he's just going to tell other people like, hey, hang in there while he's living in comfort, know this. Essentially, the entire life of James has been a trial. Being the younger brother of Jesus, not believing Jesus when he proclaims the kingdom of God, seeing him arrested and beaten and murdered, then seeing him raised from the dead and realizing that everything that Jesus had said was true, 
And then eventually becoming the leader of the church in Jerusalem, which was seen as kind of the mother church. He's seen as the leader. But during that time, during his leadership, the church faced famine and poverty and persecution. People were being scattered and killed and starving. And through it all, James remained faithful. All the way up to the time that he was murdered not long after writing this letter. So when you picture who is writing this, do not picture a comfy, powerful, influential leader. Picture a person who has humbly loved the church and led them through great suffering, eventually giving his own life. And he leads with this big statement, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Because it produces steadfastness. And the question is, what's so great about steadfastness? Well, he says, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he's saying, hey, trials and the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness makes you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Therefore, since that's what it is, that's what it produces, count it all joy when you face those tests and those trials because you know what he's going to do in it. What does he mean by perfect and complete? We want to make sure that we be clear about that. He's not talking about being sinless. He's not talking about being perfect in the sense that we talk about perfection. He's talking about being whole. Meaning, talking about when your faith, when your beliefs line up with the way that you live and the gospel transforms every area of your life and it's all in harmony together. Do you ever feel like you're kind of divided? Do you ever feel like in some context you, you feel like you can trust Jesus and you, and you follow him and you, and you love him and you, like, you want to tell people about him, you want to be in his word and then other contexts you feel like you're just a different person? You don't know why you say the things that you do or react the way that you do. Maybe you get frustrated with yourself. Well, James is saying this is the way to get to the place where your whole life is in tune with the faith that you declare. And the way to receive that is through steadfastness, which is another way of saying perseverance or unwavering faith, endurance. And so he's saying, as you're faced with trials, if you want that, if you want your life to be unified like that and to be all in with Jesus and to experience the abundant life in all areas of your life, then the way that happens is through the strength and the confidence that is built as your faith is tested through various trials. And because that is the way that happens, that is what fills us with joy. He's not the only one who says this, in case we wonder, is this just like a one-off from James? No, Paul says virtually the same thing in Romans 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So he's saying we're justified by faith, we are reconciled to God. But he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, 
knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. As we might expect, Paul's a little wordier than James, but I imagine if James is reading that, he'd be like, yeah, that's what I said. Produces steadfastness. Well, that same, uh, the word that Paul that's, gets translated in Romans as endurance is the same root word as what is translated as steadfastness. It means endurance, perseverance, unwavering hope. It means I look at Jesus and I see what he says to me about this situation, about this thing in my heart, about this thing in my life, and I say, I trust you unwaveringly. I'm going to respond in faith, even when it's hard, when it confronts my flesh. And I'm going to be steadfast. And in that, it produces a strength and a confidence that allows us to endure in our faith. And as we endure through those trials and those sufferings, Jesus proves himself worthy of that trust, which then, of course, produces joy. I'll show you what that looks like. But Paul here is saying it produces endurance. That suffering should rejoice because we know what it produces. And ultimately, he goes on to say it leads to hope, and that hope does not put us to shame. That's the hope we have in Christ, the glory of God, his love poured into us. It basically is this, saying I meet these trials, but I'm putting all of my eggs in this basket. I am all in with Jesus. I am trusting him completely, and I'm going to follow him even though it's scary, even though I'm not sure, even though I think maybe I I see a different way of going about this, I am trusting him. And what James and Paul are both saying is when you do that, when you go through that, it strengthens your faith because Jesus demonstrates he was worthy of your trust. It builds your faith. It builds your confidence. And that only happens through trials. And so James is saying, don't give up when you meet those trials. Like, don't give up at that point. Don't let that be the point where you turn away because that's the point where God is going to do his biggest work in you. And when you are confident and when you go through those and you see time and time again, and many people in this room would testify to this, that their hardest times in life, those biggest trials are the times when God produced the most joy in their heart that's abiding, the most peace in their heart that keeps them unwavering. And they would say, man, I love that. I want it. And you do that more and more and more. You trust him more and more and more and your faith becomes rock solid. But the only way to get that is through the testing of your faith through trials. I mean, anyone who has tried to get fit or get stronger or rehabbed from an injury or a surgery knows this to be true. God puts Easter eggs like this all through creation to realize that pushing yourself through the wall that you think you can't do, pushing yourself past what is comfortable, past what feels safe, that's when you grow. That's when you get stronger. That's when you get healthier. If you only do what is easy, then you'll never grow. When you only see what's right in front of you and the immediate impact that has on you, you'll cower and turn and be discouraged. But when you can see past it, 
then you can see what God is doing. That reminded me of Hebrews 12. When the author of Hebrews says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith there in verse 2, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Why did Jesus endure the cross for the joy set before him? The cross was not joyful. That trial was not joyful, but he knew what his father was doing. And so James says, don't give up. I thought of a, a farmer who counts it joy when they see rain. And most of us in our culture, if you're not a farmer or not connected to farmers, curse the rain because the rain ruins my day. The rain makes it so I can't do the things that I want to do. A person who is interested in comfort curses the rain. A person who is interested in growth and life and fruitfulness gives thanks for it. So as you meet trials, know the testing of your faith is what strengthens your faith. It's God's kindness that he allows us to walk into trials because it produces endurance and character which leads to hope and that hope in Jesus will not put us to shame because he proves himself faithful. James starts fleshing out what that looks like. He says in verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So there's another one of those kind of little direct statements, right? A lot of you have maybe heard that. If you ask wisdom, ask God. He gives generously to all. And without reproach, and that's another theme that will come up. He gives generously to all who ask. And it's another one of those statements, but there's a qualifier here that's important. This is why you draw maybe a little box around verse 5, but then maybe like some parentheses then around 6 through 8 because it gives this very important qualifier. It says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. That's with steadfastness, unwavering hope. So let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. God gives wisdom to all who ask, but in order to receive the wisdom of God, you have to believe him. You can't just say you believe the Bible and it's the word of God. You need to actually believe it in a way that's demonstrated through your life. What good does wise counsel do for the one who does not receive it? Have you ever like been in a situation where you're kind of an expert in a field and you give advice to somebody? Maybe they even ask for it. And you're, a, you're an expert in that field. They ask you for help and you give them your best counsel. And they don't know anything about, about what they're asking about, but they just say, hey, what would, you, what would you recommend here? And you tell them. And they look at you and they say, ah, oh, that's really good advice. Thank you so much. And then they go and don't do anything with it. Yes, every, every parent in here is nodding their head vigorously. I get it. Every teenager is nodding their head vigorously. What good does wise counsel do if it's not received and enacted? 
What good is wisdom to someone who thinks that they know better? Proverbs 12 says, The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. This is why you have to ask in faith with no doubting. It's not God having a a zero-tolerance policy or saying, you have to ask me nicely. It's God saying that if you ask in a way where you're kind of doubting whether you can trust me or not, whether you're doubting that I really know what I'm talking about, then you're going to be tossed back and forth. Because guess what? Trials are going to come. There's going to come a place where God's wisdom looks and you look at it and you say, ah, is this really, is this really the wisdom? Like, is this really right? And I feel like it should be this way. And we become double-minded. And when that happens, you'll be tossed around by the wind. It'll seem like a good idea in theory and then for a while until trials come. In other words, when your faith in God's wisdom is tested then you're called to endure with steadfastness. And if you do, then your confidence in his wisdom will grow, allowing you to live in line with your beliefs. So you can hear a teaching on giving. And you can feel confronted by that and look at that. And it's all well and good for a short time. You can believe in theory, yes, I know we are called to be generous. And so I want to be generous with my money because I don't want it to have a hold on me. And so we can agree in our minds and in theory And it can even work for a short time as we do a little act of generosity here, a little bit here. We start kind of giving, maybe start giving to the church. But what happens when I don't get the overtime that I thought I was going to get? What happens when an unexpected expense comes up? What happens when I start feeling a little tighter about everything and saying, well, I got got to make sure I have enough. What What if I have to give up something that I enjoy, some part of my hobby? That's a test. Will you endure in steadfastness or will you be double-minded? Or you can hear teaching on God's forgiveness and think, yes, that is wise. Unforgiveness. We, We could unpack how unforgiveness is destructive in our own lives and we can agree in theory about it. And yes, I, I, we, we need to make sure that, that we purge this from our lives, unforgiveness. And I can see its effects and it's all well and good. And you can even start to do that and forgive for little things. But until you see a person that has horribly offended you or wronged you or hurt you, or until that person that you forgave does the same thing again, it's a test. Do I believe That we are to forgive as God has forgiven? Or is that just a theoretical thing until things get hard? See, the double-minded man lacks steadfastness. His hope is not enduring. It wavers. He hears the wisdom of God and says, well, that's maybe partially true. Listen, can I be really direct about this? This has come up many times in the last few years, primarily surrounding politics pandemic and just our general view of the culture and so we get to a place where we'll say i'll listen to the wisdom of jesus unless it makes us lose the white house i'll hear the wisdom of jesus unless it makes me look foolish in the court of a public opinion i'll hear the wisdom of jesus as long as it doesn't mean i have to give up any of my rights or my way of life Folks, this is the double-minded man doubting that Jesus means what he says when he says to repay evil with good. Doubting that Jesus knows what he is talking about when he says to love your enemies. 
doubting that Jesus understands the way the world works when he says to give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Doubting that Jesus gets it when he talks about giving everything you have to follow him. Doubting that the the way for the kingdom to advance is not through worldly and political power, but through persecution, since the entire New Testament is written for those who are not in power. And because we are double-minded, we start to mesh God's wisdom with our own view of how the world should work. And so we take God's love, but we mesh it with our understanding of what love is. Or we take God's truth and we mesh it with our idea of what truth is. Or we take God's freedom and mesh it with our idea of what freedom is. And it leads us to denying biblical truths, to not loving our neighbor, to being self-righteous and haughty, self-centered and self-protective. And ultimately, we take God's plan and desires for my life and I mesh them with my own and pursue what I want to. And James says, if you ask in that way, if you ask for wisdom from God, God, show me what you want me to do. But your idea is, yeah, I want you to show me what you want. And then I'm going to weigh that against what I want. And then I'm going to, if I can find a way, God, to make those both work really well, then I'm I'm all in. And that's our definition of all in. And James says, if you ask in that way, you should not suppose to receive anything from the Lord. But if you ask trusting him, then you will receive. And look at what you'll receive. Verse verse 9, James says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. I don't want to take a lot of time on this, but the bottom line is, it's kind of a weird thing. Why would the rich boast in their humiliation? Why would the lowly boast in their exaltation? They're lowly, and it's because they both understand it's all temporary. They both believe the wisdom of God. They both believe when Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust and destroy where thieves break in and steal. The rich man says, like, yeah, none of that's worth anything. So he boasts in his humiliation that that he's wealthy, but it's all going to pass away. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Both the lowly brother and the rich man both see that and say, yeah, I I don't care about gaining the world. I want Jesus. Because they know and they believe him. He says, you cannot serve two masters. You will hate one and love the other. You cannot serve God in money. So if you believe it, if your unwavering hope is in Christ, you will receive God's wisdom. And blessed is the man who remains steadfast under those trials, under those assaults on God's wisdom. Blessed is that man For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The one who pursues the kingdom at the end of their life. Listen, I have walked with many people at the end of their life, and I am telling you, when they are at the end of their life, those who have followed Jesus and remain to the end say, this is worth it. They don't count any of their treasures as anything. They count Christ as everything. Blessed 
is that man who remains steadfast. And if you're double-minded, you may not re- believe the crown of life is worth it or worth everything. It's not a treasure hidden in a field. And James says if you live like that, you won't receive anything. If you pursue another treasure, then that is the treasure you'll receive. But the one who is steadfast receives the crown of life. And it's hard. That's why he says, like, these are trials. Like, don't, this is why he's leading with this and encouraging them and saying, like, he knows it's difficult. James is not presenting them, like, come on, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, toughen up, grow a thicker skin. Here's his argument it's worth it. Like, it is way less, this is not a chastisement. This is not like you're messing up. Come on, get your act together. It's like, do you see what is beautiful out there? Trust him. You, there's so much more that God has for you. And our temptations and our trials and our desires keep leading us away. And there's these excuses that people come up with and say like, yeah, but it's so, it's so difficult. Why is it so difficult? Why does God make it so difficult? Why doesn't he make it easier? Have you ever wondered like, why doesn't God just make it easier to follow him? Well, that's some of what the church was wondering. And James says this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Did you catch that? Why doesn't God make it easier? James is saying, God's not the one tempting you. And in fact, some of us didn't want to put that on Satan. He's saying, yeah, Satan's not the one tempting you either, actually. You are lured and enticed by your own desire. Here's a reality. The enemy cannot tempt you with something that you aren't already tempting yourself with. If you want proof of that, I know it's hard to imagine by looking at me, but I sometimes lack self-control around food. Okay? I used to grab bear claws two at a time. And get, no, I'm not going down that road. That's for like eight of you. Um, I, I sometimes can struggle with that. But one thing I don't like are jelly donuts. You're with me, right? They're weird and gross. <laughs> and never once has someone brought in a dozen jelly donuts, and I have been enticed by that. Like, never has Satan been like, Jay, jelly donut is calling out to you. Think of all the sticky, fake-tasting jelly that immediately tastes like regret and stale powdered sugar. No. Like, not tempting at all, right? Like, nobody, I've never been tasted. I'm also prone to procrastination. Never once has the enemy said, hey, Jay, wouldn't you like, instead of preparing your sermon, wouldn't you like to go out fishing? Wouldn't you like to go sit out on a boat in the middle of the water where you're trapped? And black flies eat you alive. There's no breeze. And you catch nothing. And if you do, you wouldn't know what to do with it and wouldn't want to do anything with it. No. No. Like, that's not tempting. He can't do anything to make that tempting because I don't desire it. You are only tempted by the things that you desire. The enemy cannot create desires in you. He can only expose them and take advantage of them. I have never once been tempted to shoot an animal in my backyard. And like 40% of you have. It's taken great restraint to see a buck walk in your backyard. and like, it's illegal. I'm not supposed to do that. 
And then the rest of you are like, why would you even need to like resist that temptation? That's how temptation works. It's a major key in Christian life. And what we find that we often do, and this is where we get in so much trouble, is that we think that the Christian life is about avoiding certain things. And we just always happen to pick the certain things that we're not tempted by. And it builds in us self-righteousness and boasting in our own flesh because we say, oh, well, I don't do that. This might be pushing it a little bit, but in youth ministry a long time ago, we were sitting around and one of the teenagers was confessing that they had um, given over to like trying alcohol and, being, and struggling with that. And another teenager, there were two sisters, and one of the sisters said, well, I've never... I've never struggled with that. I wouldn't know what that's like. I'm just, I'm, I'm able to resist that. And her sister looked at her and said, that's because you've never been invited to a party. <laughs> Which I was like, zing. Also, a really great point. She was boasting in her flesh that this wasn't a temptation, but there were other reasons why that wasn't a temptation for her or a reality. Be careful when you look with judgment on people that are struggling with a temptation that seems foreign to you. Our compassion should say we know what it's like to be lured by our own desires. And because, just because you have different desires that lure you than I do does not make you holier or less holy than me. What we both need to do is remind one another that Jesus is better. Whatever you're desiring, it's going to lure you away, but Jesus has something better. God gives you new desires, and what he wants for you is better. We're not called to put our desires to death because of some form of sacrifice. God's saying, put your little desires to death because those will lead to your death. Look what James says. It says, when desire, it is con- when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I'm really hesitating on this. But I want you just to hear this, that it's real. And we like to justify our desires, say that they're not so big, or we think maybe God's holding out on us, and so like we're really good at defending our desires as harmless or as even good, But the reality is this, if they are desires in our own flesh, then their aim is to lure us away and to give birth to sin and ultimately death. The only way our desires are redeemed that God has given us is to give them back and let God redeem them and give us the desires that he has given us. Our desires lead to pain and death. God's desires lead to joy and life. He's wired you to desire things, but but in him, trust him. He doesn't hold back. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. There's nothing good that doesn't come from God. So why would you be concerned? Why would we be concerned? Why would we ever feel like God is holding back? Why would we ever feel like I wouldn't want to just put my desires to death and receive the redeemed desires that he has given me? Why would I not want that? Every good thing comes from God. If he doesn't want you to have it, 
then you don't want it either. But what he does is he'll redeem those things so that we don't turn our desires for things that are destructive or even things that are good and turn them into idols that we worship. He will, he will work in us and redeem all of those things. And steadfastness is what allows you to hold strong to that and say, no, I want to put this to death and I want to desire what God desires. I want to seek the kingdom first. And as you do that, as you go through that, you will discover he's worthy. He's worth that trust and your faith will grow as you meet those trials and you respond in steadfastness, knowing that the testing of your faith strengthens your faith. So, that all comes back to, if that's what he does, if in this we, we grow in our wisdom, believing God is who he says he is, and we have that perspective, and it changes what we pursue in our life and what we desire, and he transforms all of that. And at the end of all that, we receive joy and abundant life in Christ. Well, then no wonder James says, listen, if you know that those are all the things he's doing, then consider it joy. Count it all joy when you meet those trials because God is working in you. When your faith is tested, he will strengthen it. He will show himself worthy. He will deepen your joy and your peace. It proves that God knows what he's talking about. There's no way to be steadfast in your faith without it. It's not possible. There's no way to know that your house can withstand a storm unless a storm hits it. There's no way to know. You might think, you might hope, in a way, but to know. Folks, there are people in this church right now who know that Jesus is worth it. Who know that Jesus is worth losing everything because they've lost everything and they found that he's worth it. There are people here who know that this world is temporary because they've lost everything that is temporary here on earth and they found that Jesus is worth it. And they know in a way that if you haven't met that trial, we don't know. There's just no way to know. See, the trials themselves are not joyful, but the results are far better than the pain of the trial. Steadfastness in the hope of Jesus, a faith that endures, a faith that holds you steady. How do you know that Jesus is enough until you lose everything? Easy days do not build confidence. Lazy days do not build strength. Courage is only built when there is something to fear. Patience is only discovered when there is something frustrating. I've mentioned this quote before, and I can't remember who said it, but they made the very astute observation that we pray for patience all the time and then pray against anything that God would use to make us more patient. And we don't see the hypocrisy of that. We pray for faith and simultaneously pray against anything that would build our faith. It'd be like hiring a personal trainer and saying, I want to get stronger, and then being angry every time they suggest I should pick up something heavy. The question is just, do you trust him? That's a legitimate question. But hear this. Remember Romans 5, that passage. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and that 
character and hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Immediately after this, Paul says, anticipating that, how, how do I know he's worthy of that trust? That's a lot. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So how do you know? Because of the cross. How do you know you can trust him? Because when you were at your lowest point with nothing to offer, he looked at you and said, I love you. I'll die for you. And he did. That is the steadfastness of our God, demonstrated through suffering. And that is what suffering and trials does in us. And when it has its full effect, our lives are in harmony with the faith that we believe and declare. Wisdom, eyes for the kingdom, resilience against temptation, receiving the crown of life, full of joy and peace in Christ now and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we want to trust you. We want to believe you fully. We want to ask for wisdom and not be double-minded. We want to pursue the kingdom and not be lured away by our own desires. And Lord, we know that the way that we do that is just moment by moment trusting you. Even thinking of Hebrews, forgetting what lies behind, like ditching aside the sin that so easily entangles us. And Lord, we know that your posture towards us is not one of impatience or frustration. It's one of steadfastness. Steadfast and abounding love. Extravagant mercies of grace. That you are not chastising through James here. But you are calling us to believe. Ask. You receive. What good gift which you would withhold from us, whether it's wisdom or anything that we would enjoy. Why would we ever think that you are holding out? Why would we ever think that you would withhold certain wisdom or not share with us all that you have when you have graciously given us your son? Lord, forgive us for that, but then let us see that you are standing there offering gift after gift, blessing after blessing. And that as we meet trials of various kinds, that we would count it joy because we know, ah, this, this is when you are doing your work in me. This is when you are showing me what it looks like to trust you, that I might receive all of the blessing that you have for me, all of the life that you have for me. Lord, help us to see that as we face trials of various kinds. Help us to encourage one another in compassion, pointing to you saying you're better we believe you we trust you we desire you above all else through the power of the holy spirit in the name of jesus christ amen